Chapter Seven, Part One of the Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World, by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy, Chapter Seven, Part One, The Battle of Tours. A.D. 732. The events that rescued our ancestors of Britain and our neighbors of Gaul from the civil and religious yoke of the Koran. Gibbon. The broad tract of Champagne country which intervenes between the cities of Poitiers and Tours is principally composed of a succession of rich pasture lands, which are traversed and fertilized by the Cher, the Creuse, the Vienne, the Clan, the Ante, and other tributaries of the river loire here and there the ground swells into picturesque eminences and occasionally a belt of forest land a brown heath or a clustering series of vineyards breaks the monotony of the wide-spread meadows but the general character of the land is that of a grassy plain and it seems naturally adapted for the evolutions of numerous armies especially of those vast bodies of cavalry which principally decided the fate of nations during the centuries that followed the downfall of rome and preceded the consolidation of the modern european powers this region has been signalized by more than one memorable conflict but it is principally interesting to the historian by having been the scene of the great victory won by charles martel over the saracens a d seven thirty two which gave a decisive check to the career of Arab conquest in Western Europe, rescued Christendom from Islam, preserved the relics of ancient and the germs of modern civilization, and re-established the old superiority of the Indo-European over the Semitic family of mankind. Sizimonde and Michelet have underrated the enduring interest of this great appeal of battle between the champions of the Crescent and the Cross. But, if French writers have slighted the exploits of their national hero, the Saracenic trophies of Charles Martel have had full justice done to them by English and German historians. Gibbon devotes several pages of his great work to the narrative of the Battle of Tours, and to the consideration of the consequences which probably would have resulted if Abderrahman's enterprise had not been crushed by the Frankish chief. Gibbon's remark that if the Saracen conquest had not then been checked, perhaps the interpretation of the Koran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Mahomet, has almost an air of regret. Schlegel speaks of this mighty victory in terms of fervent gratitude, and tells how the arms of Charles Martel saved and delivered the Christian nations of the West from the deadly grasp of all destroying islam and ranka points out as one of the most important epochs in the history of the world the commencement of the eighth century when on the one side mohammedanism threatened to overspread italy and gaul and on the other the ancient idolatry of saxony and friesland once more forced its way across the rhine in this peril of christian institutions a youthful prince of germanic race Karl Martel arose as their champion, maintained them with all the energy which the necessity for self-defense calls forth, and finally extended them into new regions.
Arnold ranks the victory of Charles Martel even higher than the victory of Arminius. Among those signal deliverances which have affected for centuries the happiness of mankind. In fact, the more we test its importance, the higher we shall be led to estimate it. And though the authentic details which we possess of its circumstances and its heroes are but meagre, we can trace enough of its general character to make us watch with deep interest this encounter between the rival conquerors of the decaying Roman Empire. That old classic world, the history of which occupies so large a portion of our early studies, lay, in the eighth century of our era, utterly exanimate and overthrown. On the north the German, on the south the Arab, was rending away its provinces. At last the spoilers encountered one another, each striving for the full mastery of the prey. Their conflict brought back upon the memory of Gibbon the old Homeric simile, where the strife of Hector and Patroclus over the dead body of Tribriones is compared to the combat of two lions, that, in their hate and hunger, fight together on the mountain-tops over the carcass of a slaughtered stag, and the reluctant yielding of the Saracen powers to the superior might of the northern warriors might not inaptly recall those other lines of the same book of the Iliad, where the downfall of Patroclus beneath Hector is likened to the forced yielding of the panting and exhausted wild boar, that had long and furiously fought with the superior beast of prey for the possession of the fountain among the rocks, at which each burned to drink. Although three centuries had passed away since the Germanic conquerors of Rome had crossed the Rhine, never to repass that frontier stream, no settled system of institutions or government, no amalgamation of the various races into one people, no uniformity of language or habits had been established in the country, at the time when Charles Martel was called on to repel the menacing tide of the Saracenic invasion from the south. Gaul was not yet France, in that, as in other provinces of the Roman Empire of the West, the dominion of the Caesars had been shattered as early as the fifth century, and barbaric kingdoms and principalities had promptly risen on the ruins of the Roman power. But few of these had any permanency, and none of them consolidated the rest, or any considerable number of the rest, into one coherent and organized civil and political society. The great bulk of the population still consisted of the conquered provincials, that is to say, of Romanized Celts, of a Gallic race which had long been under the dominion of the Caesars, and had acquired, together with no slight infusion of Roman blood, the language, the literature, the laws, and the civilization of Latium. Among these, and dominant over them, roved or dwelt the German victors, some retaining nearly all the rude independence of their primitive national character, others softened and disciplined by the aspect and contact of the manners and institutions of civilized life. For it is to be borne in mind that the Roman Empire in the West was not crushed by any sudden avalanche of barbaric invasion. The German conquerors came across the Rhine, not in enormous hosts, but in bands of a few thousand warriors at a time. The conquest of a province was the result of an infinite series of partial local invasions, carried on by little armies of this description. The victorious warriors either retired with their booty, or fixed themselves in the invaded district 
taking care to keep sufficiently concentrated for military purposes, and ever ready for some fresh foray, either against a rival Teutonic band, or some hitherto unassailed city of the provincials. Gradually, however, the conquerors acquired a desire for permanent landed possessions. They lost somewhat of the restless thirst for novelty and adventure, which had first made them throng beneath the banner of the boldest captains of their tribe, and leave their native forests for a roving military life on the left bank of the Rhine. They were converted to the Christian faith, and gave up with their old creed much of the coarse ferocity, which must have been fostered in the spirits of the ancient warriors of the north, by a mythology which promised, as a reward of the brave on earth, an eternal cycle of fighting and drunkenness in heaven. But although their conversion and other civilizing influences operated powerfully upon the Germans in Gaul, and although the Franks, who were originally a confederation of the Teutonic tribes that dwelt between the Rhine, the Main, and the Weser, established a decided superiority over the other conquerors of the province, as well as over the conquered provincials, the country long remained a chaos of uncombined and shifting elements. The early princes of the Merovingian dynasty were generally occupied in wars against other princes of their house, occasioned by the frequent subdivisions of the Frank monarchy, and the ablest and best of them had found all their energies tasked to the utmost to defend the barrier of the Rhine against the pagan Germans, who strove to pass that river and gather their share of the spoils of the empire. The conquests which the Saracens effected over the southern and eastern provinces of Rome were far more rapid than those achieved by the Germans in the north, and the new organizations of society which the Moslems introduced were summarily and uniformly enforced. Exactly a century passed between the death of Mohammed and the date of the Battle of Tours. During that century the followers of the Prophet had torn away half the Roman Empire, and, besides their conquests over Persia, the Saracens had overrun Syria, Egypt, Africa, and Spain, in an uncheckered and apparently irresistible career of victory. Nor, at the commencement of the eighth century of our era, was the Mohammedan world divided against itself, as it subsequently became. All these vast regions obeyed the Caliph. Throughout them all, from the Pyrenees to the Oxus, the name of Mohammed was invoked in prayer, and the Koran revered as the Book of the Law. It was under one of their ablest and most renowned commanders, with a veteran army and with every apparent advantage of time, place, and circumstance, that the Arabs made their great effort at the conquest of Europe north of the Pyrenees. The victorious Moslem soldiery in Spain, a countless multitude, Syrian, Moor, Saracen, Greek renegade, Persian and Copt and Tartar, in one bond of erring faith conjoined strong in the youth and heat of zeal, a dreadful brotherhood, were eager for the plunder of more Christian cities and shrines, and full of fanatic confidence in the invincibility of their arms. Nor were the chiefs of victory less assured, by long success elate, and proud of that overwhelming strength which surely they believed, as it had rolled thus far unchecked, would roll victorious on till like the orient the subjected west should bow in reverence at mahomed's name and pilgrims from remotest arctic shores tread with religious feet the burning sands of araby and mecca's stony soil southey's roderick
it is not only by the modern christian poet but by the old arabian chroniclers also that these feelings of ambition and arrogance are attributed to the moslems who had overthrown the visigoth power in spain and their eager expectations of new wars were excited to the utmost on the reappointment by the caliph of abderrahman ibn abdullah al gafeki to the government of that country a d seven twenty nine which restored them a general who had signalized his skill and prowess during the conquests of africa and spain whose ready valor and generosity had made him the idol of the troops who had already been engaged in several expeditions into gaul so as to be well acquainted with the national character and tactics of the franks and who was known to thirst like a good moslem for revenge for the slaughter of some detachments of the true believers which had been cut off on the north of the pyrenees in addition to his cardinal military virtues abderrahman is described by the arab writers as a model of integrity and justice the first two years of his second administration in spain were occupied in severe reforms of the abuses which under his predecessors had crept into the system of government and in extensive preparations for his intended conquest of gaul besides the troops which he collected from his province he obtained from africa a large body of chosen barber cavalry officered by arabs of proved skill and valor and in the summer of seven thirty two he crossed the pyrenees at the head of an army which some arab writers rate at eighty thousand strong while some of the christian chroniclers swell its numbers to many hundreds of thousands more probably the arab account diminishes but of the two keeps nearer to the truth it was from this formidable host after Eudes, the count of aquitaine had vainly striven to check it after many strong cities had fallen before it and half the land been overrun that gaul and christendom were at last rescued by the strong arm of prince charles who acquired a surname martel the hammer like that of the war-god of his forefathers creed from the might with which he broke and shattered his enemies in the battle the merovingian kings had sunk into absolute insignificance and had become mere puppets of royalty before the eighth century charles martel like his father pepin heristal was duke of the austrasian franks the bravest and most thoroughly germanic part of the nation and exercised in the name of the titular king what little paramount authority the turbulent minor rulers of districts and towns could be persuaded or compelled to acknowledge engaged with his national competitors in perpetual conflicts for power engaged also in more serious struggles for safety against the fierce tribes of the unconverted frisians bavarians saxons and thuringians who at that epoch assailed with peculiar ferocity the christianized germans on the left bank of the rhine charles martel added experienced skill to his natural courage and he had also formed a militia of veterans among the franks Hallam has thrown out a doubt whether, in our admiration of his victory at Tours, we do not judge a little too much by the event, and whether there was not rashness in his risking the fate of France on the result of a general battle with the invaders. But when we remember that Charles had no standing army, and the independent spirit of the Frank warriors who followed his standard, it seems most probable that it was not in his power to adopt the cautious policy of watching the invaders and wearing out their strength by delay 
So dreadful and so widespread were the ravages of the Saracenic-like cavalry throughout Gaul, that it must have been impossible to restrain for any length of time the indignant ardor of the Franks. And even if Charles could have persuaded his men to look tamely on, while the Arabs stormed more towns and desolated more districts, he could not have kept an army together when the usual period of a military expedition had expired. If indeed the Arab account of the disorganization of the Moslem forces be correct, the battle was as well timed on the part of Charles as it was beyond all question well fought. End of chapter 7, part 1. Eva Easton, Slotsburg, New York, February 2014.